Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. If there happens to be an infection in that one class, it's just those um, 20 students and that teacher who would have to uh, quarantine not the entire school. QAnon is fundamentally a pro-Trump conspiracy theory. Uh, this is Mayor Joe Ganim. Certainly there is a grappling for uh, some of the answers as to what has happened, disappointment, um, uncertainty. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Those are some voices in the news, including Governor Lamont on where we live, talking about how schools should handle positive COVID-19 cases. You also heard the Atlantic's executive editor, Adrian LaFrance, talking about talking to Fresh Air about QAnon. And you heard Mayor Joe Gannam describing some of the feelings you may have when Bridgeport officials get arrested. We'll get to Bridgeport's latest black eye in just a few moments. But on the panel today, I want to welcome back to the show Dan Haar, a columnist and associate editor at Hearst, Connecticut. Dan, how you doing? Good morning. Great to be here. Also with us, Kalila Brown-Dean, Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, Quinnipiac University political science professor, also senior director for inclusive excellence at the university and author of identity politics in the United States. And she's the host of the upcoming Connecticut public radio show, Disrupted. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Kalila, welcome back. Good morning, Lucy. And Colin McEnroe, host of the Colin McEnroe Show, also columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. Hi, Colin. Good morning, Lucy, Danny, Kalila. And you can join us too. find us on Twitter at WNPR Wheelhouse. So let's talk about the arrests of police chief Armando Perez and the city's personnel director, David Dunn. Both have since resigned. They're accused of rigging the hiring process for police chief to ensure Perez could get the police chief job. Now, he's a friend, a longtime friend of Mayor Joe Gannam, who we know was convicted and sent to prison for municipal corruption. Dan, tell us how this alleged scheme worked. Well, the, the 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 basic simple premise is that uh, the mayor. Well, oh, I shouldn't say that. Somebody wanted <laughs> Armando Perez, the chief, to be one of the top three finishers in the competition for police chief. He, of course, was acting police chief for most of the time after Ganem took over as mayor in or late 2015 after he won the election. Uh, somewhat of a surprise, and so. Uh, Perez, uh, Perez's predecessor was given a nice retirement package by Ganem, presumably so that Ganem could name Perez the chief. Um, it is, uh, uh, so, so at some point in there, Perez has to, in order to become the full-time chief, pass through a national, a national search and the tests that come with it. And apparently he couldn't do that. And so he did that with a lot of help from especially two, two members of the police force, uh, and of course, from uh, Mr. Dunn, the personnel director, and that's what the FBI uh, is contending, and and federal prosecutors are contending. Uh, and Perez, uh, and one person said that Ganem was the one who wanted Perez to be in the top three. He's in the top three. That that's only the only way Ganem can choose him is if he's in the top three. Mm-hmm. Ganem is given the list of three. He's not involved in the broader search under the charter in Bridgeport. 
and Ganim now says uh, after the fact that he knew nothing about this and that he got a list of three and chose one. Um, to, to quote the great Colin McEnroe, it's always the driver. <laughs> Colin, what was your reaction? We know we knew for some time that there was an investigation, a federal investigation happening in Bridgeport. Uh, what's your response to uh, what uh, authorities have uncovered? Well, so first of all, yeah, since is the has never left Bridgeport. I, mean, I think they've been the entire time. I think some of them, some agents, not too charmed by the fact that. Uh, Mayor Ganem uh, took the FBI agent who had been involved heavily in his uh, original prosecution and kind of turned him to his side. Uh, and now he is this uh, non-city council approved job holder. He's the, the special advisor to, on good government to the Ganem administration. I, I actually rubbed some FBI it's kind of the role. So they've been sitting there. This all kind of started as a kind of a no bid scrap middle, uh, I believe, related mm -hmm. investigation and kind of bled into this uh, other investigation. It might be worth noting, particularly because it kind of will also tie into uh, our next topic. It's kind of an uh, unusual hybrid prosecution, SDNY, the Southern District of New York. Uh, they are the prosecuting entity on this, although I believe the Connecticut FBI office did the investigation. That has to do with the now famous or infamous John Durham. It doesn't have anything to do with his uh, Russia investigation, but apparently he had to recuse himself. Uh, he is the Connecticut's uh, U.S. attorney, so ordinarily he'd be the prosecutor. Uh, he has some kind of investigative or prosecutorial relationship with the Bridgeport police. So um, I just quickly, I'll say one more thing, which is that, um, you know, Dan talked about uh, the fact that uh, Perez turned to two cops uh, to help him with the written parts of the exam, and he'd already been given you know, some of the materials. One of them was a guy named Captain Mark Straubel, uh, who had been, or Straubel, who was uh, placed on uh, administrative leave in the 2018 for racist texts against the department's highest-ranking African-American officer, Captain Roderick Porter. Not incidentally, one of the three finalists in this, and a guy who did not get the chief's job because Perez was, uh, if we're to believe all of the allegations, kind of in there inappropriately. So what did Perez do? He goes one of whom has this pretty terrible history. If you've read those texts, they are just awful. Uh, and so he's on administrative leave. I don't think he ever got back to the force. Uh, and But that guy is already pretty early in the process cooperating with the... So as Pat approaches him and says, I need this and I need that, and you're the only one who can help me, and I don't, I'm not a good <laughs> you know, you gotta you got to sneak back the, into the police station, although you've been placed on administrative leave and get these things for me. He's dealing with a guy who is at times going to be wearing a wire and who is essentially sharing everything that gets said uh, with the, the federal investigators. So uh, Perez is pretty cooked. Once again, this is all alleged stuff, but he was pretty cooked from the beginning. You're, Colin, your connection's breaking up a little bit. Oh, okay. Hopefully that works. I just wanted to give you a heads up. Okay. Uh, Kalila, I wanted to ask you, you know, Mayor Ganim says he didn't know anything about this, but why should Bridgeport voters and residents believe him, someone who was convicted of accepting bribes when he held public office? You know, this is something that uh, Bridgeport residents, uh, some who didn't support uh, Mayor Ganim's second chance, brought up that this is he's not someone to be trusted. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on on who the real victims are in this new situation. I think the real victims in this, Lucy, are the people of Bridgeport 
who look to the police department to keep them safe, to protect them, to support their best interests, who look to their mayor and the administration for leadership in all of the uncertainty that Bridgeport has faced over the last two years, all of the, the tension, the deep-seated tension between its police department and its community, whether we're talking about ICE raids or the death of you know, people in the city at the hands of officers. This is the moment when people have said, how can we trust you to keep, you sa keep us safe mm -hmm. if we cannot even trust you to select the head of your department in a way that is ethical? So if you're demanding law and order amongst your public and your citizens, but you are not upholding it, that responsibility starts at the top. And I want to be clear that, you know, just because Mayor Ganim, um, you know, had this part of his past and, and did these things, broke the law in his past, does not mean that people with a prior conviction cannot be trusted in the future. What it does mean is that people who are able to be given a second chance have an even higher level of obligation to make sure that everything is being done in a way that upholds the trust that citizens have offered. And so even if the, the mayor did not know, I think he has to address this head on. How can you lead and govern with this level of corruption within the police department. And so it's not just the chief, but to then have co-conspirators within the force and within the administration, this is part of a bigger problem. And you know, I'll just say that if we were not living in this dystopian reality that is American politics right now, maybe I would have been surprised or shocked by hearing this revelation. Instead, when the news broke, I thought, hmm, okay, another day in American politics. And you're not the only one that felt that way, Kalila. Dan, what, how do you respond to what Kalila said about optics mattering? Why, why did Gannon well, allow this to happen? Yeah, I just wanna, I just wanna uh, pick up exactly on what she said there and, and say that I'm not so sure in Connecticut that with Gannon having lost so badly in the primary against Lamont in 2018 and now having evidently no larger future, there is always with a person who's in power, no matter how big the power is, the potential for more power, even with uh, um, Trump, it's obvious that he's attempting to get a Nobel Prize for himself, even as president. And so there's always that potential. And when that potential is taken away, the relevance becomes slightly less. Now, not to belittle what's happening as a big deal. I agree with Kalila that, that you know this is the state's biggest city. This is a troubled city. This is the city with the least economic development opportunity of the five larger cities in Connecticut. And it certainly does matter to the residents of the city. But I'm getting a sense statewide among people at the state capitol and in statewide politics that it's like, yeah, you know, and again, it gets to what Kalila was saying. Yeah, you know, sure, you know, Ganem's involved in another scandal. What else is new? And it's no longer this sort of statewide scandal because Ganem no longer has potential to move past being the mayor. Um, I just quickly want to say I, I looked up... Uh, a, a story when Colin reminded us of the, um, that it started with the scrap metal. In January of 2019, uh, uh, Chief Perez, I believe acting Chief Perez at the time, or maybe he was chief by, I'm sorry, he was chief by then, made a public announcement that the FBI had taken over the internal investigation of the scrap metal deal, which we do believe led to this. Uh, that was a, a reminder. That was the public facilities director who had a slush fund from the sale of city-owned scrap metal, and was the slush fund was allegedly misused. That became another mess that 
came and went. In that story, he tells Hearst that the mayor instructed him to hand over the investigation to the FBI in January of 2019. How true that is, I don't know. But it's interesting that they, the mayor and the chief say that the FBI is in at our behest. That is interesting. Uh, Kalila, what are your thoughts on that? And just again, uh, how the state can move past uh, this yet again, seeing that Bridgeport is, you know, it's just another uh, potential corruption issue. And it doesn't really get that focus and attention at the Capitol uh, to help a city uh, with residents that need it. I think the state has already moved past Bridgeport, and that's mm-hmm. sad. Mm-hmm. That I think there are many people who are content to sequester the challenges facing Bridgeport and say, well, that's just Bridgeport. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so unfortunate because, again, the real people who suffer there are the people of Bridgeport, hardworking people who go to work every day, who are trying to make their community stronger, who are concerned about the future of opportunity for their children. And to have that level of neglect at the local level and then at the state level says a lot about the divisions within our state. You know, to be in Fairfield County and see such dramatic, stark differences, not just in resources, but also in access and opportunity. And it always raises the question, who's going to step forward to be a real advocate for Bridgeport or any other town in our state and say, this is unacceptable. What we've done before will not work moving forward. And that's where I think, you know, some of the activism of young people that I've seen coming out of Bridgeport is inspiring because even though they feel that they've been overlooked, they refuse to allow that to be their story. And one old person, Marilyn Moore, Senator Marilyn Moore, that's right. Uh, Colin, I'm just curious what your thoughts are about uh, this needing a change in Bridgeport, uh, new leaders uh, to take the helm and maybe turn this around for a city that is largely ignored. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, first of all, I would endorse everything that's been said so far. But yes, I mean, this is a sign. We, we, we don't know how involved Ganim is. The only thing we know about Ganim uh, is that uh, the acting personnel director, one of the two indicted persons, did say to one of the people on the selection panel that Mayor Ganim wanted Perez to be in the top three. That That's a, I th- a limit of what's known out there. But what you do have is evasive set of problems there uh, and and they penalize honest people this is the problem with all corruption is that it penalizes honest people and in in the case uh, of this particular instance it, it's also that you know there is a racial component to this you know there really it seems to me the person who lost out the most was the african-american candidate for chief of police who also did not get appointed acting chief of police even though he had been gone further down the application process pipeline than the the assistant chief who is now the acting bridgeport chief Again, you're listening to The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. We were just talking about uh, this latest uh, black eye on the city of Bridgeport, this uh, alleged scheme by uh, now uh, former police chief Armando Armando Perez and the uh, former uh, hiring personnel in that city. There's another interesting uh, story related to a federal investigation, connections to Connecticut, Colin. It relates to Prosecutor Nora Dennehy. What can you tell us about that? 
Okay, so first of all, Nora Danahy, I mean, you know, there were a lot of people who were heavily involved in the first prosecution of uh, of John Rowland, but I think Nora Danahy really kind of emerged as the person who made that. She also has this set of amazing, by every account, uh, whenever she gets a new appointment, they interview the people whose clients she put in jail or forced to plead guilty the last time around. And all of these high-power lawyers, people will say, oh, it's really great. And she's persistent and she's a workaholic. You can't outwork her, you know. Um, so that's who she is. And yeah, her brother was a superior court judge. Her father, her late father, was a Supreme Court judge uh, here in Connecticut. So it's a kind of, um, you know, judicial royalty or something here. So she was asked by John Durham to uh, to join this investigation that Durham is leading uh, within the Justice Department into the predication uh, of the Russia inquiry. So in other words, was there a basis for the the FBI and the Justice Department to be looking into uh, Russian interference in the 2016 election? Specifically, was there a basis for believing that Putin's interest in all this had turned from merely sowing discord to advancing the interests of a particular candidate, that candidate being President Trump? So that's the investigation she was involved in. According to a piece by Ed Mahoney in the Hartford Current, she not only walked away, but she walked away specifically because, at least partly, one of her reasons was she had a concern that the results of this investigation would be released before they were before the investigation was in fact complete uh, released in time to have kind of an october surprise effect on the election this is in, in the current piece. I don't think Danahy herself has ever commented uh, on it since she departed. But, you know, it's sort of part of, of a building narrative about the Durham investigation. Mm. Uh, Kalila, what do we know about, um, again, the fact that there have been reports administration officials are putting pressure on uh, this team uh, to possibly report something out before the election? And what role Attorney General Bill Barr has in all of this? Kalila, are you there? Oh, sorry. I lost my connection for a moment. Nothing like oh. live radio technology, <laughs> right? We're um, all in different places. Know, <laughs> we're trying. But I think, you know, once again, Lucy, there are no surprises here. Mm -hmm. This is an administration that has shown time and time again that it is willing to exert pressure in areas where it should not, that it is willing to impose its will for electoral gain upon people that previously we thought were insulated from that kind of political pressure and that political maneuvering. But I think from a broader sense, understanding how Attorney General Barr has stepped into areas that, again, you know, your role as AG is to be an attorney and a lawyer for the people and for the country, not for the person who appointed you. This raises a bigger issue and a bigger challenge related to the role of the Judiciary Department, the Department of Justice, excuse me, as well as the ways in which people who have taken this oath subvert that oath based on their allegiance or perhaps fear of retaliation. And we're seeing that with some courts, we're seeing that with some judges, we are seeing that with people who traditionally have stayed above the fray. And that 
is what I think is so important here beyond this one person, beyond this one situation, the ways in which the structures have been undermined and eroded to a point that I sometimes wonder how we rebound and recover from that. Mm. Uh, before we head to break, Dan, is this a, a story that you think um, Americans are paying attention to? Yes, absolutely. Uh, although it's difficult to follow. Uh, I think we should, if we're talking about this, I, I want to credit the great Ed Mahoney from The Current for breaking it, uh, it, it not just, you know, sort of The Current broadly, uh, although that too. Uh, I think this is absolutely, this goes to the core of the type of corruption that the Trump administration is all about. And that is not the uh, pay for play sort of, you know, I, I was going to say small time, but sometimes it's not small time stuff that we see in Bridgeport. But the, the, the much more insidious corruption of abuse of power, and that's what this is about, especially in the time of an election. Uh, it, it, in, and when there is an accusation, an, an assumption slash accusation, well, this is an accusation like this, that the administration is, is forcing a report right before an election, it becomes very difficult for the Trump administration to deny because there have been so many cases like this where Trump himself has admitted it. Um, you know, and I, I don't need to give examples because time is short in the show, but that's become a big problem for the Trump administration. And obviously, 50 or 38 percent of voters absolutely agree with them. And another, another 12 percent are miraculously undecided. And we should stress again that Nora Danahy has not said anything publicly about this and why she uh, has chosen to resign. Uh, this is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. You just heard from Dan Haar, columnist and associate editor at Hearst, Connecticut. Dr. Clyla Brown-Dean is also with us, Quinnipiac University political science professor and senior director for inclusive excellence at the university. And Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show and a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. Coming up, a QAnon conspiracy theory. What's that have to do with Connecticut? We'll tell you right after the break. This is the Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On the panel today, Dan Haar, columnist and associate editor at Hearst, Connecticut. Colin McEnroe is here, host of the Colin McEnroe Show on Connecticut Public Radio. And Dr. Clyla Brown-Dean, Quinnipiac University political science professor and senior director for inclusive excellence at the university. Kalila, you actually are going to be hosting an upcoming Connecticut Public Radio show called Disrupted. Tell us about it. Lucy, I'm so excited about this show. You know, if we think about this year and how our lives have been totally changed and for some of us disrupted in a way that was surprising, what I want to do with this show is talk to people and, and organizations who can not just help us make sense of this current moment, but to really think about how we move forward together in a way that is informed and more inclusive. So we're doing that by talking to people whose voices we may not usually hear. So we're excited about a show called Black and Blue where we'll be talking to African-Americans involved in law enforcement about how they are managing their career and their profession with some of the demands that we're seeing across the country right now, uprisings in cities. We'll talk about the role of art and how in this moment, when for some of us, our access to art and culture has been disrupted, how does this challenge us to rethink 
the arts and the role that it plays in our lives. So I'm excited for the show and for the podcast. And when is it premiering, Kalila? October 7th. So the show will air on Wednesdays at three o'clock. So send me your ideas and thoughts and we will embark on this journey together. Well, you can find uh, Kalila on Twitter at KBDPHD. Again, you can send her your thoughts on this new show. It sounds great, Kalila. I can't wait to listen. Thanks, Lucy. I wanted to get back to politics because it is getting weirder. By now, you've probably heard of QAnon. If not, here's the gist. Followers claim President Trump and the U.S. military are battling a cabal of Democratic leaders and celebrities who sexually abuse and eat children. President Trump's enemies are also falsely said to be Satan worshipers. Sometimes UFOs are involved, too. This all sounds pretty wacky. So why does a Connecticut state senator from Watertown have a QAnon sticker on the rear windshield of his car? WNPR and others reported on this after a photo of his car was posted on social media showing his state lawmaker plates that include his district number, a sticker on the rear windshield reads hashtag WWG1WGA. That stands for where we go one, we go all. It's a common saying among QAnon followers. In a written statement, State Senator Eric Berthel says he doesn't believe some of the more outlandish parts of this online conspiracy theory, but he gives QAnon credit for getting more people involved in public policy. Uh, Kalila, I want to start with you. Uh, QAnon sounds pretty wacky, but why are people following this movement? Do we know? You know, Lucy, what's interesting is that people who follow this movement have very different reasons for why the movement appeals to them. I think some of it comes out of this overwhelming sense of frustration and distrust that many people have in government at every level. But for a public official to publicly proclaim their identity or support of this movement, even while denouncing part of it, you know, it takes a lot to display a sticker. That takes a level of commitment because that thing doesn't come off, you know, after a year or two. But to understand that the FBI has said that these sort of conspiracy theory based movements are a domestic terror threat. So it's great that people can have whatever beliefs they want, right? That's our, our constitutionally protected right that we should defend. But the fact that so many people who subscribe to these wild conspiracy theories then act on those beliefs should give us pause, but it also should mean that we should hold people to a standard that if you are in a position of authority and influence, you have to understand that. It's not about picking apart which theories you like and dismissing the other, but understanding how they are connected in a way that gives a lot of us concern. Good points. Uh, Colin, I know some people will probably wonder, shouldn't a state lawmaker be smart enough uh, to realize all of this and to not latch on to something that sounds so crazy? Well, I mean, only if you haven't known a lot of state lawmakers. <laughs> the, um, I mean, Berthel has said that he does not embrace the wacky parts of QAnon it's not clear that there are any non-wacky parts of QAnon. In other words, if you were concerned about the as he's concerned about, which is corruption and stuff like that, there are plenty of very non-crazy organizations that you can either join or get uh, windshield decals from. Uh, so there's something going on. Uh, and I, 
think it's sort of worth worrying about. First of all, it's the first sign here in Connecticut, although there are signs elsewhere in the country. In fact, we may, we probably will have a member of Congress from Georgia who is a QAnon enthusiast. Uh, but it's a little alarming to have somebody in the legislature with that set of views. And I have a problem with the Republicans, too, because, I mean, you know, they're the minority party. Would you want this guy in a majority situation having committee chairman um, without having a fuller understanding of what his actual ideological relationship with QAnon is? I, I, I see it as as Kalila is suggesting, a pretty pervasive issue. Hmm. Dana, what are your thoughts? Again, you have a well, state the, lawmaker. Yeah, pi- yes, picking up on, on what what Colin just said, uh, Senator Berthel is the ranking Republican on the Education Committee, if I'm not mistaken. And it, it, this is a committee, it, the ranking members do have power. It's not, the, it's not just the case that if the Republicans were to take the majority, they would have significant power. The ranking members uh, in Hartford, they, they always complain that they don't have enough, but they are consulted on bills and they're consulted on on a lot of other things, especially if they earn that right, as as some of the ranking members do. Uh, Senator Kelly comes to mind on public health. Uh, but here's a case where in education we are precisely dealing right now with a moment in which there are accusations of conspiracy being thrown around as to, you know, football and why are people being kept out and all sorts of other things. Education is always the province of this sort of thing for one reason or another. And so it's not the case that this is a sort of a a, a vacuum where there's a question about whether it might matter. Oh, it matters. And I would just also amplify what Colin and Kalila said, whereas if I wear a KKK robe and hood and walk down the streets of Hartford and walk into the state capitol and say, I am disassociating myself with the negative aspects of the Ku Klux Klan. And I just, I, I, I favor the social aspects of that. You know, I, it's a social club. And that essentially, of course, is what it was in the, in the teens, 20s and 30s when it rose up. We're a social club. Uh, that's ridiculous. And it speaks not to the outlandishness of what Senator Berthel is, is doing by putting a bumper sticker on his car, but to the fact that we have no limits anymore in Trump era. There are no taboos. There are no. There is no shame anymore in politics, uh, at, at least in certain provinces of it. And I wonder whether uh, this group wasn't founded in order to make Trumpism broadly look mainstream. Mm. Dan, I'm wondering, are other members of the Republican Caucus when this story came out? Do we know if they're saying to Senator Berthel, "What are you thinking"? I don't know what they're saying to him, but we certainly get a wall of silence when this sort of thing happens, and that's. I haven't seen any, uh, uh, Colin, Kalila, or you could correct me if I missed one, but I haven't seen any statements at all from any Republicans. And when pressed, it's all, they just sort of wave it off and, you know, this, that, this, that. And that's the sort of thing that you see. So that wall of silence is in place. Mm, Kalila, that sounds like it could be a problem, right? I think it is a problem. I think, you know, people are so afraid in this election year to do the right thing and to be honest and call out the hypocrisy again of saying that, you know, you believe in small government, you believe in limited government, you believe in those founding principles, and yet you are unwilling to check such wild conspiracies and movements that are capturing public attention in a way that is detrimental. Again, it's different. If, you know, the Republican Party says, look, people can say whatever 
whatever they want. They can believe whatever they want. But given the documented evidence that this is turning from rhetoric into action, I think it is not only dangerous to remain silent about this, but it is also a dereliction of duty for those who are called to keep people safe and to understand that in this moment of national crisis and all of this uncertainty in our state, to at least make a statement seems to be the very least that one could do. Let's move on uh, to uh, some troubling news, uh, depending on if you've been paying attention to this. But Connecticut has seen its positivity rate uh, going above 1%. This is the rate of transmission uh, in our community uh, that uh, researchers, public health officials really pay attention to when they think about how we're controlling coronavirus. Also, the number of people hospitalized has crept up slightly, although both numbers are still lower than they were when uh, COVID really peaked in our state back in April and May. Colin, we know you pay attention to uh, these numbers when you see over the last week above our positivity rate over 1%. I mean, what are your thoughts? Um, it should worry people. Um, I mean, it shouldn't worry people a lot at this point. The hospitalizations are up. Uh, there is one thing. They, they were sort of that high in mid-August, too. Um I, most of this, I think, is going to turn out to be coming from the schools. You're starting to see already in Waterbury and uh, uh, Killingly, West Haven, Westbrook. Uh, there are schools having those because of some podcasts. Uh, I think those two things are, are not unrelated. So it's a it's a thing you sh- we should be a little concerned about. We've gone from being – there's sort of some of the dashboards that look – there are things as states with low rates that are staying low and states that are with low rates that are now ticking up really have transitioned from the first category to the second. So that should worry us a little tiny bit anyway. Mm. Meanwhile, uh, with uh, Governor Lamont uh, now uh, saying that fines uh, will be uh, put on people for not wearing masks or for hosting too many people in a gathering or even attending a gathering that exceeds size restrictions. Uh, Dan, uh, how do you, uh, when you look at the the latest uh, guidelines uh, and rules in place to control this, you know, what has been the response both from the public and also uh, from politicians around the state? To me, the most interesting response is, and, and we saw it from First Selectman Jamie Stevenson, who, of course, ran for lieutenant governor uh, in 2018 in Darien. And we saw it also in Greenwich yesterday from some uh, Republicans, I believe the first selectman there as well, that they're calling this government overreach. That is, Lamont's executive order specifically says it already had a, he already had an executive order that said it's against the law to not wear a mask when you cannot distance from somebody whether it outdoors or indoors, and certainly th- that any retail oper- uh, store can order people to wear a mask uh, or not be allowed in. So that was already state law in force. So the premise here is that allowing cities and towns to give a $100 infraction, and by the way, it's up to $250 for people who participate in groups that are too large and up to $500 for people who organize those groups. And I've seen quite a few of those. The state can start to make some money on this. But it's interesting to me that it's viewed as government overreach when all Lamont has done is given the towns the Mm -hmm. opportunity to do that if they so choose in enforcement. 
and that's we're seeing at at Hearst we we we're seeing about half the people react by saying this is really really bad and and you know my cold dead hand you, you will give me an infraction when my cold dead chin has a mask over it uh, and half the people are very supportive it's really very divided. It is interesting, too, when we hear from the chief of staff, uh, Paul Mounds, uh, Dan, that it's municipal leaders that asked for uh, there being some teeth uh, to this, because even though for the most part, a lot of people in Connecticut are uh, wearing masks and, again, trying uh, to keep their distance uh, to be safe, there are people that are flouting this, that, that feel like it's an infringement on their rights. Yeah, that's right. And this is happening exactly as we just discussed, as the numbers are going up. Uh, and so, you know, again, as with the football debate, where the CIAC, the, the Interscholastic uh, Sports Conference, can't seem to make a decision to move to spring like they've done in 30 other states, I believe. Uh, and the numbers are, again, as Colin said, not alarming. I just want to give three numbers if I can. Mm-hmm. Nationally, the percent positive rate dropped to a low of 4.3% in uh, June rose to a high of 8.5% in July and is now dropping down and is at 5% versus Connecticut, which dropped below 1% and has now crept up to, as of this week, 1.2%, the seven-day weekly average. So that's where we are in perspective. And we rightly see that as alarming because direction is what matters, not the numbers. But the numbers are not yet bad, but we see that direction. Mm. Uh, Kalila, before we head to break, everyone's been talking about the second wave, the second wave of COVID-19. Is there a feeling out there that as we see, again, positivity rising a little bit, hospitalizations are up, that the second wave, that's something that could be coming? You know, I think the, the second wave is something that we've been preparing for really over the last few months. And I say we in the context of someone who is on a college campus with university students and you know spent the last 4 months working on that plan of what can we put into place to keep our students safe but also the broader community that we're a part of you know i speak of of preparing as a parent with a school aged child i speak from the perspective of working in philanthropy and trying to help nonprofits who are working to get people basic needs like food. And so preparing for that second wave is important. But just to link back to what was just said, I think also many people have made the governor the easy target because they don't want to publicly have to make these difficult choices to keep people accountable. And not only do I think that's flawed, because I think we have to have local accountability and local agency, but it also means that we are still not in a moment where we can say full stop. If we ever want to get through this thing, whatever that looks like, it means that we have to take affirmative measures to do so. And so I I want us to also be aware of what a second wave will mean for our state, not just economically, but for things like mental health and wellness. Mm -hmm. If I can't eat outside at a restaurant in December, right, what impact does that have on my ability to connect with people, to be socially distant, but to also be socially connected? 
That's Dr. Clara Brown-Dean, Quinnipiac University political science professor here on The Wheelhouse. Also, Dan Harris here, columnist and associate editor at Hearst, Connecticut, and Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, we look at how one city is trying to meet the needs of children with learning disabilities during the pandemic. You can join us, too. Find us on Twitter at WMPR Wheelhouse. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We know distance learning can be difficult, especially for students with learning disabilities. After complaints from parents, New Haven Public Schools has decided to allow students to come back to in-person classes earlier than the rest of the children. These are special education students. New Haven is doing remote learning for the first 10 weeks of school to protect uh, the community from COVID-19. That's according to the school board. Kalila, you know, this has been reported by the New Haven Independent. What are some of the problems that parents of special education students have reported and why is the school now responding wasn't this something that's been talked about from the spring through the summer why now you know this has something been something that's been talked about and it's been the subject of a great deal of tension between the administration of New Haven Public Schools and the Board of Ed. So, you know, many people will remember that the administration had one plan, the Board of Ed vetoed that plan or, or overruled that plan and went to 10 weeks of remote learning. And what many parents have been saying, Lucy, is their kids aren't learning from an, a virtual only option, but it also does not address the unique needs of their students. When you are talking about high need populations of, of having paraprofessionals that can assist them, for students who are not used to using a computer or may not even be able to access learning in that way, it puts them in a vulnerable position, but also a greater risk position. And then at the same time, to bring students back into these buildings in smaller numbers, students who have a great deal of physical contact often with their educators, there are other concerns there about the health and safety of putting kids who are already at risk and vulnerable at heightened risk. And so I think parents are feeling like they have been left out of that conversation that the needs of their students have been overlooked but it's also about this triage approach to public education that really is not serving any interest, whether it's the parents, the students, or the staff within the buildings who are concerned about making this work, especially if we mentioned in the last section, if there is a second wave, it means that children in this public school system may be out for the rest of the year far beyond the initial 10 weeks. Kalala, you talked about the tension between the superintendent, the school board, and the, it's the children that really are the ones suffering here. I understand WTNH reported this morning, uh, the New Haven Teachers Union president says they didn't know about uh, this plan to bring some uh, special education students back into the building. And the president is quoted as saying, my recommendation to teachers is to not volunteer for this assignment at this point. So where does that leave these families that need help? You know, the, the motto and the mantra is kids first. And often when sides are debating and fighting, I always raise the question, are we really putting kids first? Are we listening 
to kids who are saying the rates of depression and anxiety amongst young people has skyrocketed during this pandemic. It's also about the realization that for many kids, home is not a safe place. School becomes a respite for them from the kind of dysfunction or tension that they experience in the home. And so to make this an issue about the union's involvement or about whether it's appropriate for people to volunteer still takes us away mm -hmm. from that. What I, I hope won't happen is that we begin pitting teachers against parents and families or certain teachers against others who have made this choice to be back in the building to interact with their students and make sure that these kids can be healthy beyond what they're learning. Uh, we know that there are racial disparities that exist to how this disease has impacted uh, Americans around our country. Uh, Dan, there was a new CDC report that looked at racial disparities among children uh, with COVID-19. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, that was a, uh, looking at the relatively small, uh, thankfully, relatively small number of deaths uh, among children, which I think was in the 100 to 200 range nationwide uh or it was a, it was a rel relatively small number uh you know compared to about 350,000 children these are youths and children under you know adult age 21 i believe uh and 75% of those deaths were found to be in uh uh black and and latinx populations and that's way disproportionate, of course, to, to compared to 40% of the population. And that raises the same health disparities issues that we've been looking at throughout the entirety of, uh, of, of coronavirus, which is that it, it raises questions as to um, uh, access to health as well as underlying health as a result of uh, uh, poverty conditions. Um, and even questions about whether there are some biologic causes, which has not been proven or disproven. Um, and so that's just yet another alarming statistic. Uh, but of course, the good thing is that children aren't are not dying for reasons that they're still figuring out, believing believed to be related to receptors in, in cells. Thanks, Dan, for that. It's time for feats of strength and airing of grievances. Colin McInerney, I'll start with you. We've got four minutes. Okay, so uh, a slightly happier story. By the way, this is my third. <laughs> today. A slightly happier story here in West Hartford, uh, where Dan and I both live. Uh, the uh, Firmridge Park was has been updating itself for contributions. And Michael Schur, the co-creator of Parks and Recreation uh, and the creator of uh, The Good Place, uh, grew up right next to Firmridge Park. And he said that for ten, he would give them ten thousand dollars for a new promenade uh, if they would name it after Leslie Nope, the character played uh, by uh, um, uh, Amy Poehler in Parks and Rec. So that is what is happening. We are going to have an, a Leslie Nope promenade, promenade or promenade in Fernridge Park in West Hartford. And Michael Schur, who, you know, he's a big, big shot now in entertainment, but he stayed in touch with West Hartford and, and the Parks and Rec Department, specifically of West Hartford. And I think that's kind of neat. Nice. Uh, Dan, can you tell us one quickly? Uh, yes, I'm also going to do a park one. I was at the uh, football rally last week, and I stumbled while I was in Bushnell Park there where the rally was at the Capitol. I stumbled across a public music event by the Bushnell Park Foundation. Uh, and never mind the fact that I didn't pay the $30 to cross the rope. I will not say whether I crossed the rope. I want to give uh, uh, plaudits to that and many, many other groups that are trying against all odds 
to actually mount uh, either public events or, in the case of virtual events, audience engagement events against great odds. Even here on radio, there are fewer people in cars. And so there is always a challenge. And I want to give a, a, a shout out to those groups that are doing that. Mm. And Clella Brown-Dane, you get the final word. My feat of strength goes to every student in our state from preschool through college who is doing the very best that they can amid all this uncertainty in spite of adults seeming inability to get on one accord. I really want to <laughs> applaud students. That's right. And I miss seeing all of you in a studio where we don't have to connect by phone, by Skype, by Comrex, by Zoom, but this is where we are. But I thank all of you again for coming on uh, the show. Kyla Brown-Dean, Quinnipiac University Political Science Professor and Senior Director of Inclusive Excellence at the University. Stay tuned for Disrupted, I believe, premiering October 7th. We can't wait to hear it, Kyla. Thanks, Lucy. Dan Hart, thank you for joining us via Zoom today. Columnist and Associate Editor at Hearst, Connecticut. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. I appreciate it. And Colin McEnroe, host of the Colin McEnroe Show. We're glad that we, we get to hear from you despite being on the phone. Finally, it worked, Colin. Thank you. Thank you, Lucy. Today's show produced by Matt Dwyer. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. And we'll be back next week.